Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. I'm Mike. Welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. You know how this works. Our movie this week is 1973's Don't Look Now, directed by Nicholas Rogue, again starring the intrepid Donald Sutherland, who we just covered, and based on a story by Daphne du Maurier, who of course is responsible for the birds, Rebecca, and others. Um, So very good hands material-wise. Dan, what was your overall take on this film? I think that there's, first of all, it's incredible. Second of all, I think there's two ways you can you can look at this film. Here's the first one. It's that it comes from a long literary tradition. So um, the guards in Hamlet tell Horatio that the ghost of Hamlet's father is going to appear. And he says, tush, tush, twill not appear. Horatio is the scholar. Horatio is the, 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 the logical one. Until he sees the ghost. Um, we have Walton and Frankenstein. We have Dr. Seward and Dracula. We have Mr. Utterson and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So there's this long tradition of, of logical people who know better until they see the ghost, until they see the monster. And, and then you go along with them for that journey. That's one way it works. But I think a more interesting thing about this film is that it dramatizes our own contradictory feelings about the supernatural. Now, I want to quote uh, one of my favorite books. I know it's a book that you know well, The Life of Samuel Johnson. So in that book, 1791, um, Boswell, the author, recounts a conversation he had about a famous ghost with Johnson. And I just want to read you what Johnson said. He said, quote, this is 1791, quote, It is wonderful that 5,000 years have now elapsed since the creation of the world, and still it is undecided whether or not there has ever been an instance of the spirit of any person appearing after death. All argument is against it but all belief is for it, quote. And I think that's a perfect way, a perfect statement about how we think about the supernatural, right? We're, we're like Spock. We dismiss it. You know, logically, it's impossible. We've never seen it. But then we see Hereditary at a matinee, and that night you hear the furnace make a noise, and you're like, oh my God, is the devil here? And I think the movie dramatizes that split in us beautifully. I mean, think about it. John, Donald Sutherland, despite the fact that he's already had second sight once, he would never call it that. He would never admit it, Right. His goal for much of the movie is to prove he's superior to those two sisters, to prove he's superior to Laura, right? So remember that when Laura is told by the by the sisters that 
um, Christine, their daughter, is happy. And she's like, to Laura, the movie's over. She's not upset. She's not, she's not freaked out or anything. But John will not be taken in by that superstition. You know, it's interesting. He restores those churches, but he doesn't really believe in anything. He restores them as pieces of architecture, not as spiritual monuments, right? So I think in, in the terms of Samuel Johnson, Laura finds belief much more convincing than argument. And I think that, that the movie dramatizes those two feelings about the supernatural in the character of John. I think it does it beautifully. How about you? <laughs> well, so I was struck by the, when, when a movie has a twist ending, it's either you, you should never see it again or you should always watch it because it, it's either got something in its structure inherently that makes it worth watching or it's just kind of shot its wad and that's, you, you saw it and that's it. So here's what I think makes this movie so worth watching is that the moments that are confusing are so artistically and beautifully done that even if you had enough information to interpret them logically, those scenes and those moments would still work. So even the, the, the scene where the daughter drowns is so crazy yes. that even if you know what's going to happen, it's still shocking every time it happens. But that's that's because of the film's structure and the structure of images that the, that the directors put together. Uh, the same thing for all of his visions. The same thing for how menacing the maitre d' at the hotel seems for no, for absolutely no reason. You will stay with us tonight. Uh, we're going out. And I, don't, I don't know why that should be weird, but it's or the, weird. Or the police uh, inspector. Yeah, or the police inspector. But the police inspector, the, the police inspector has the logical response that the viewer has, which is, I'm not sure what's going on here. But I bet you if I tail it and I pay close attention, something will happen that will reveal the structure to me. And it, and it does. You know, like, for example, I think watching The Sixth Sense now is a little bit too pat. Right. You know, and that's, you know, that's an easy movie to pick on. Right. Um, you know, and ending wise, but it doesn't have the same visual structure as this movie. It has some interesting performances, which this movie, which this movie also does. So I think what you're saying is that is that um, sometimes you have a film with a surprise ending like The Sixth Sense, and it's great. Like, you watch it, the surprise is great, it's terrific, right? But in this movie, it's almost like the whole film is, is as good as the surprise. Yeah, I could, I have, you can now have the interpretive structure watching it the second time to understand that what, what he's seeing when the, when the barge is going around. Yes. But it's so creepy that when, it, that when it happens, it doesn't matter if you've seen it two times or a hundred times or two hundred times, it's, it's just going to work. It's funny because you talked about the first scene where where his daughter drowns. I mean, it's and before that happens, it seems like they've got it made. And it occurred to me that it's like, uh, you know, the movie begins in Eden, but it ends in hell. It ends. And that's what Venice is like. I mean, this is not a great travelogue film to go to Venice. No, it's not. It's uh, it's a you know, it, it makes it seem like it's a dirty city. Um, that's that's full of history. That's all broken down. And it, talk about the the use of ambient noise makes it all the all the more weird. It's the sound of water lapping on the stones. It's people's clackety 1970 shoes. There, you know, there's a there's a lot going on. There's a lot of information. It's it's very much information overload. And you're right. The it's the the irony that the interpretive structure sits with these two women, these two sisters, who until I understood kind of the end of the film seemed to be the don't look now as in you're, you're trying to hide from them out in Venice and don't look now it's those two yeah. and they've, they've reappeared again. All right, great. Well, in part two, we'll talk about our favorite moments. Great. Okay. Welcome back. So in part two, we're talking about our favorite moments. We're talking about scenes that are indicative of the themes of the film as a whole. Dan, can you start us off here? 
Sure, and it's so hard to pick a good moment moment from this film. I mean, I really wanted to do the slide in the beginning when the when the you know the image bleeds as he as he's rescuing his daughter. But um, I think that a, a representative moment is when John sees Laura on the barge with the two sisters for the first time and has his second sight. Right now, that's not only just a great plot device because it fuels the investigation of where is she? She's supposed to be with my with my son at the boarding school and things like that. But I think that it it, it epitomizes the movie because for a second. It, you're like, did I did I just see that? Like, was that her? What? Then that wasn't her. That was someone that looks like her, right? Did I did I see that or not? And to his credit, Nicholas Rogue doesn't go back and show it to you in slow motion. It's like the title. You're like, wait a minute, did I see that or not? And when I thought about it, it occurred to me that watching a movie is like having second sight, right? Sometimes come images come at you, and you're not really sure what you're seeing or how to process them, right? So you think about the first time you saw 2001. The first time you got to the end, you're like, I've seen a lot of things, but I really can't process them, right? Or we did The Wicker Man last season. When Edward Woodward gets to the island, he starts to see the, the people having sex in the graveyard, and all these, he's like, did, did I just see that, or did, did I not see that? And the, and the viewer's in the same way. So you have second sight. I, I um You know, none of us can remember the first time we saw the horse's head in The Godfather. But if you if you could go back and remember what that was like, there's that moment like for like two or three seconds where it's all cognitive dissonance. Like, wait a minute, wait, why is there a head of a horse? And then you, a second later, you know it's his horse. But the the terror of that moment is so great because it's so unexpected. The brutality of that horse's head is so unexpected, right? So. Um, that's how movies work. They give you a bunch of images and you kind of have to process them. And sometimes it's very easy to do. And sometimes it's very difficult to do. You know, they must mean something, but you're unsure what. Um, and it occurred to me, well, what if that happened to you all the time? Or what if that happened to you once in a while and you just received an image and you were asked to process it? What would that be like? Now, that might be really cool. You could be like, um, you can go figure out what the, the baseball game score would be or something like that. Or it would be horrifying like when the blind woman is clutching at herself, saying he's in danger, and it's it's terrifying, right? So I think the movie puts you in a place where you you kind of experience second sight, like the characters do, and are asked to try to figure it out. And I think that's what makes this movie so compelling. Well, to jump off from that, I think that the hor how horrifying her visions are uh, <clears throat> really connects to uh, my moment, which is when Donald Sutherland's character is... Uh, uh, he's hanging off the girder in the yeah, church. Um, it's so good because in in any other movie, no matter who the male lead is, you know that he would like, you'd show his biceps and he'd grunt and he'd kind of be like <laughs> able to half pull himself up, but not quite. And he's he's in peril, but it's just maybe just a little peril. But Donald, Donald Sutherland swings off that thing like we would, which is cl cling for anything, just an entire loss of dignity which you don't really see in movies. Movies right. typically allow their characters to remain to to keep some dignity because they want to keep some kind of aesthetic distance, or you know they're 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 building the character up to be some kind of thing, or it's got to do something later. But not Donald Sutherland's character, especially if you consider the ending and how it ends, because he gets his he gets his Sherlock Holmes revelation, but he gets it right in the face. Yeah, know, which, and and that's the same guy who's hanging off the uh, hang off the scaffolding, um, screaming while everybody below is you know either screaming. We're saying don't move. We're trying to get up, get it, get up to save him. Uh, but the the movie doesn't hold back from moments like that, where where other movies I think would try to create a moment out of them. And in that moment, of course, as a viewer, you have the quote unquote air quote second sight because you have a premonition that something terrible is going to happen to him when he's up on that scaffold. You know it. You know it from your lifetime of watching movies, of reading books, but also because you're in this Venice 
with these two, with the weird sisters, so to speak, from Macbeth, right? The weird sisters. So you know it's coming. John might be afraid it's coming, but he'll never admit it to himself. But then once he falls, th then he starts to change in the film. All right, I'll see you in part three. Welcome back. So in part three, we always talk about the title or the ending. Certainly this film has one of the most memorable endings in any of the films we've covered so far. Mike, what's your take on the ending? Let's nail the facts down first for, for 30 seconds. Okay. While the events of the film have been going on, somebody has been killing adults uh, and specifically adult women around Venice. Yes. Uh, and so the reason that the police tail Donald Sutherland's character is because they suspect him potentially of being the killer, or he's got some kind of connection to something that's going on. They want to see what it is. Meanwhile, Donald Sutherland is trailing somebody that he believes to be some kind of vision of his daughter in her little red slicker that she drowned in with the hood up. And he tracks her down to an alley. And then when he's finally got her cornered, she turns around and it's some kind of crazy murderous dwarf with the weirdest face you've ever seen who kills him by hitting him with a meat cleaver in the neck. And, and she's lured an adult away that she can commit murder yet again. So, the, so those are the facts of the case. I think that what's going on in the movie, one interesting moment when you find out that it's, that it's someone who's kind of quote unquote been there all along. She's in the original slide picture yes. of the church that he's got with the, with the hood on while he's alive. So she's, she's been a presence in the movie, but she's not a suspect the way that Agatha Christie would have her be a suspect. And one of the beautiful things about that is that I don't reject that as an audience member, but the presence of an actual evil in the universe of the film has the effect of making everybody appear sinister, even those who are not turn out not to be uh, sinister. The sisters are fine. The police captain is fine. The hotelier is fine. The mater d is fine. His wife's not in on it. But the actual presence of real evil in their midst is what casts the sinister light on everybody. Uh, but you can't pinpoint it down because this this dwarf hides in the shadows. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny how you, just even saying the plot out loud makes makes you remind how 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 wild it is, right? Um, I think that you know it's funny because he gets second sight, and when he finally starts to accept it that there might be something to all of this, it's it's misplaced. Yeah, he he trust he trusts himself that he's having some kind of vision. But as you said, what if the the visions were horrific and not at all helpful? Yeah, right. So I think at the end, you know what what. You're thinking about the end of this film reminded me of the end, and I'm making air quotes to those listening, the end of Vertigo. And I don't mean the actual end of the film Vertigo. I mean like the ending in the middle of the film where the big reveal comes, where you find out that Madeline and Judy are the same person. So I think it reminded me of that because in Vertigo, you know, we have a logical explanation for what for what for what the the character about what, for what Jimmy Stewart was wondering could be a supernatural kind of thing, right? You know, is Madeline possessed by the spirit of Carlotta? And then you get the you get the actual logical answer was, well, no, she was having an affair with this guy Gavin Elster, and he read about his old college friend who had a fear of heights, and they faked the whole like it's the most baroque, implausible, um, um, complicated way to, to murder somebody, right? But it makes logical sense. It actually does. It will work on paper, right? So I think the same thing happens here is that like Jimmy Stewart and the viewer, you get seduced into thinking that the dwarf is really, you know, um, Christine's spirit and something that we come to believe it. But then reality comes 
and reality comes back hard. Um, and in the movie, you're put into this space where everything becomes a sign of something else. You know, his daughter drowns, so they go to Venice of all places where there's water everywhere. They pull the dead girl out of the water. At one point, he picks up the doll next to the water. So it's all this, it's like the lighthouse, which we talked about a couple seasons ago. All these things associate with each other. But in the end of the film, you can't believe that John is murdered because of all this. And that's so horrifying, right? In the in the story, which I've read, the, at the very end, the dwarf actually throws a knife at, at John's throat. And John's last thought is, what a bloody silly way to die. So he comes back as the, as the, as the, the, the voice of logic at the end. But in the movie, you don't get that at all. No, it's uh, the movie shouldn't, this shouldn't work. Yes. It, it only works if, if you filmed this in any kind of photorealistic way, I, my brain would reject it. But it's made up of impressionistic images laid over one another and not, and then you find out it's not even in sequential order. And there's something about the layout and the aesthetic quality of this film that, that makes it work that leads to a payoff. Yeah, because the, the, when the when the sick when the the second sighted sister, the second sighted sister says, you know, he's in danger, he's in danger. We we assume it's because of the scaffold thing, and then that's over, and so okay, now he's fine. But it's not. I mean, he's in danger because he's he's going to die there, and that's what the movie does with time. Is you're constantly being shown things out of order. You know, the the notorious now or famous sex scene during that whole scene, it's intercut with scenes of them later on, like that evening, right? And so why do that? I think it it's done to to make the viewer. Um, uh, kind of like um, loose in terms of narrative, in terms of, to shake up the viewer's um, sense of time. But it, it's to set you up for the payoff. Yes. But, it, but it's also, but it's also beautifully done. Although you know, I've had um, between uh, Animal House and whatever else he's been in, I've I've had enough uh, Naked Donald Sutherland. I think for like a, a, the next decade or so. I think that's a fair cop. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about Don't Look Now. Please follow us on Twitter at 15MINFILM. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us reviews and please let us know what you'd like us to cover soon. Thanks for listening. See you next time. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.